Welcome to Shed Life. Go. All righty. Welcome, everyone. We're today joined by Dr. Furlow. He's a doctor on the front line of this COVID situation. He's from London. How are you, doctor? You good? Hello, mate. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, as you can imagine, I've probably got a lot to say um, about COVID and generally COVID-19 in general. Absolutely. Fair play, fair play. So, yeah, I mean, I guess to start us off, um, how are things on the front line? I mean, it must be difficult, right? I think it's, it's difficult to put it all into words. It's been a, it's been a whirlwind last six weeks. I mean, every day you're hearing from people the term unprecedented, um, uncertain. I think those words really do define what's going on at the moment. And I think constantly in terms of medical practice, things are changing daily. Um, uh, what I do personally think is, is that often a light that shone into society, what's really going on is not really the truth of what's actually going on. So you tend to find the government or managers or sort of non-clinical people telling you one story, but the story that doctors, nurses, pharmacists, um, physiotherapists, all clinicians that they're facing on the ground is completely different. It's a completely different story. And I, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to some of the, the key issues a little bit later, like PPE and, and testing. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of different variables that when you look at it on the ground, we're completely dry in terms of resources available. And I guess that's a, that's a topic for another day, maybe, you know, resources in the NHS has always been something that's been uh, a, a sort of a con uh, what's the, not sure the word, but almost a, a contentious topic of discussion in terms of prior to COVID. And I think right now, what you're starting to see is a lo whole load of wider issues that relate actually more to the Department of Health and the government and the people that are making these decisions. Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, just to jump in there. Sorry to disturb. I'm just trying to say that one that one sort of issue you raised, uh, which yeah, obviously is maybe a further down the line kind of issue. But just to get into it straight away, because it's actually a very, very good issue. How people who are kind of pulling the strings and making the decisions in the NHS, for example, they may not be actually qualified, right? And that might be a very blanket statement. But they may not be qualified. They may not be ex-doctors, ex-nurses, ex-you know clinicians, whatever. But you know, if you look at other countries like Singapore and this and that, Hong Kong, there's a uh, you know people there in politics in the government are ex-doctors and ex-people who have this kind of experience. So you're saying here in the UK, that's not the case. You're kind of getting more administrators who are making these decisions and giving feedback to the public. So how does that make you feel as a doctor, and how accurate is that statement? I think uh, that's really accurate, actually. You've pretty much summed up what I was trying to get across. And I think, how does it make me feel? I think, to, to, to tell you the truth, personally, I think it's quite insulting. 
Um, people will say that's a bold statement to say. I think at the end of the day, when you've trained yourself um, and developed skills over so many years, doing X number of exams, you know, um, you know, your qualifications are building. And actually, the one thing that you were trained to do is to look after patients and, and actually provide care to the patients and to the wider public. And to be told this is how to do it or this is the right way to do it where, by somebody who's never managed a patient in their life, that to me spells trouble. The decisions that could come as a consequence of that, to me, is, is, is pretty stark in terms of what can happen, in terms of patient incidents, um, serious discharges. Um, and obviously, I mean, just for, just for, for our audience out there, discharges are not actually in the interest of a trust, they, they bounce back within five days, they have to pay out for that failed discharge. So a lot of the, a lot of the decision making that's going on to support the need for beds and trying to manage a bed crisis is actually having a direct and negative impact on the care that is being provided to the most unwell people out there. So the, uh, the elderly, the vulnerable, those with chronic illnesses. Um, and I think as a clinician for myself, um, it doesn't matter how conscientious you are, to go in to be, to be a doctor, you have to have some sort of compassion and some sort of caring, uh, a sort of a caring personality to deliver a good service of care. And actually um, working with this, as you said, as you rightly said, this administrative class that's been created, that are now, that they've determined themselves as managers, but have no knowledge of the topic or the subject at hand. And actually, the, 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 the direct impact that it's having on patient safety is actually very demoralizing to clinicians as a whole. Because what you're seeing is you're seeing people with chronic illness repeatedly bouncing back, not being managed properly. There's people who are acutely unwell out there. They're not being managed properly. And it's not due to the fault, any fault of the clinician on the ground. Wherever you go up and down the country, doctors, nurses, I mean, we know that there's the 8 p.m. clap um, for the NHS workers. Whilst I do appreciate that's a gesture, and absolutely for all of those clinicians on the ground I think sometimes there's a danger with things like that that does it take you away from the real issues at hand and I know we're going to get into some of these issues now so you know um, you know sorry sorry Dr. Fella let, let's just jump in there and what, what you mentioned about the the 8 p.m Thursday club what's your mm -hmm. take on that as being part of the NHS mm -hmm. being a doctor on the front line how do you envisage all that like what's your thoughts and feelings towards that so I think, firstly, I'd like to extend my thanks to the public for their, that kind gesture, in both individually and as an organisation. But that being said, and I do appreciate that it's a sign of recognition of, of people working hard or putting themselves at risk, 
But at the same time, I would rather we get to the sort of nitty gritty of the key issues and we actually address more problem areas in hospitals at the moment in terms of getting adequate PPE, ensuring all key workers are key, like, properly tested, ensuring that the BMA trade union is giving adequate protection to doctors that could fall unwell very quickly and they need support through means through occupational health or, or whatnot. So I'd like to, I'd like there to be more of a focus on the actual issues on the ground, but I do appreciate that it's a good gesture. Yeah, that's my take on it. I don't know. No, what you no, think. no, that's fair enough. Yeah, no, no, I agree. Like, I, I it's, it's a nice gesture. Um, there's obviously a lot of underlying different issues and different people having different opinions about that. That's completely fair. Um, <clears throat> all right. So these issues on the ground floor, like on the front line. What are the major issues that you will see as a doctor or a nurse, et cetera, on the front line and maybe which we're not hearing about? We're all, we get our briefings, our daily briefings from, you know, um, ministers, et cetera. Uh, what can you tell us uh, is the actual, you know, about absolutely what's going on? How does that differ? I think I can... Um... So I can give you one one very recent example. Um, one the the concept of swabbing patients now in hospitals in patients. Um, it's the the UK is following the PHE guidelines, which suggests that swabbing is non aerosol generating. Um, which means that you don't need to wear the full enhanced PPE. So the visor, the face shield, you would be, or even an FFP, uh, FFP3 mask, you just, uh, a surgical fitted mask would suffice. And actually, um, if you have a look at World Health Organization guidelines, and various other countries that are following those guidelines um, have shown that everybody has been given enhanced full PPE. Now, I personally find this very uncomfortable, the idea of swabbing somebody, bearing in mind for the, for the public or for our audience in the general, um, COVID-19 swab is a nasopharyngeal swab. So you can swab the nose and you can also swab the, the back of the throat. Now, getting within two meters of somebody and swabbing the back of their throat it has the potential to make them gag the potential of them to gag ah yeah that's dangerous absolutely. that is proper dangerous that absolutely. Is, uh, i mean this is a lot of things i think i spoke to a few dentists as well and they were saying this is, this is like the danger kind of area and if you're if you're swabbing down the back of the throat towards where their tonsils are and stuff that's going to cause a gag reflex and they're going to spew it all over you. And if you haven't got the right protection and whatnot, that, that, that's literally putting yourself in harm's way and which is actually taking a resource away from the NHS, which they're trying so hard to uh, protect. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think you touched upon a really key issue, which is, you know, you're taking away a workforce. I mean, I think that issue is a very, a very current topic, uh, given sort of the phased response of this conservative government 
to slowly, in my opinion, privatise the system and take away the NHS. Um, this, it's been part of a long haul process. So I think if you go back to, let me get this right, I think of 2016, uh, if I'm not mistaken, or 2017, the junior doctor contracts. Um, obviously, we know that we had a large proportion of junior doctors going on strike, including myself. I also, <laughs> you'd be glad to know I was. I was You're on the picket the- line, were you? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I was on the picket line. I was told by my colleagues, you cannot go into hospital that day. You cannot set foot on the site. We need to show that we need to stand. And, and, it, and I think even that issue, you go back then, and there, there is a problem, uh, like a systemic problem with clinicians in this country, where we don't have a trade union that, that is or a, a trade union that, that's really strong. I think at the moment, doctors, we have the, the British Medical Association, the BMA, um, not a very strong trade union, um, generally doesn't have, it can't force issues. If you look at maybe someone like, you look at the tube drivers, you know, TFL, you look at how strong they are as a trade union and, and you think they've come, they, they got their pay rises. Um, now with COVID workers, they're able to protect them. I'm not sure that doctors have the same level of protection with the BMA, and that in itself is a problem. Um, but I, sorry, I appreciate we wa- we wavered a little bit, but I guess going forward, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of issues um, that I think politically need to be addressed in the NHS, and in, maybe not even just in the NHS as an organization, maybe the Department of Health in general. So uh, again, why, uh, one question I'd be asking is why is, it, why is it fundamentally run by non-clinicians? Why is it run by politicians? Yeah, I mean, that's something we mentioned at the start, wasn't it? Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, so, so what would you like to see changed about the whole NHS structure? Um, just from being a doctor, obviously, on the front line at the moment through an unprecedented, in quotation, uh, kind of event, what kind of things would you like to see changed, not just in this scenario, but going forward, like how to protect you guys and your occupation and whatnot? I, I think going forward, um, I think it's a, it, your question is not an easy question to, to summarise because I think... The reality oh, fair, fair, is fair. There's, yeah. that there's a lot of problems on the ground. I think going forward, I, they need to think about, they need, there needs to be a greater emphasis on the quality of care delivered and actual care to patients. And what I mean by that is, I'm not saying that we're not delivering care at the moment. What I mean is focusing on the patient pathway. Now, what I mean for, by that for our listeners, for the benefit of our listeners, is um, the, the sort of design, the process that the patient goes through. So in this country, and this, is what, this, this issue is much wider than COVID-19, um, you think about primary care and secondary care. And again, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm sure most of them know, but primary care is your general practitioner, and secondary care is when you get admitted to hospital. And... Um, you think about the process here, you know, you have a problem, you go to see your GP. Your GP then refers you to specialist care. 
So if you have problems with your stomach, you'll go and see a gastroenterologist. The gastroenterologist may see you in eight weeks and then after that find that you've got nothing wrong, say you're fine because it had taken eight weeks before the appointment anyways. They then see them, they think it's fine, but they develop a rash. They then refer them to dermatology. That takes another eight weeks to see. The, the rash then uh, again, it, uh, it rapidly uh, resolves by itself. Then you get referred back to the GP. The whole process in this country, for me, if I thinking about if I was in the shoes of a patient, I think it's a, it's a very arduous process. The patient pathway here in terms of referrals is endless. And already, if you can imagine, we had such a backlog of secondary care referrals. And now you've got COVID-19, and actually, everything's been pushed back almost six months to a year now. Um, and when you, well, actually, we've got some good news on that front. I've heard that things are apparently going to be resuming uh, in certain services in the NHS are starting to resume as normal. So good news is things like cancer care and and those getting uh, getting quite expensive cancer medication. They're going to they're going to receive their care, and, and priority is going to be made. But again. You, you've got to worry that people are talking about COVID-19 and we're talking about this first wave of this virus. What about all of those that have been neglected of care in all of this? What about all of those surgical patients that don't get a surgery now for one year? What about all of those obstetric and gynecology, gynecology patients, psychiatric patients? That's another big, big yeah, no, no. Listen, that that that, that that's, that that's a really, really good topic. Uh, really good um, question, and that's something we'll get to in a minute. Um, just to go back one sec, um, th this sort of um, timeline that you uh, portrayed for us about referrals and going through all these different streams—you know, gastro streams and then dermatology dermatology streams. How in, how, in your opinion, can that be improved upon? Is that a government thing to improve upon or is that a general healthcare thing, which, I don't know, the bodies in charge of that can actually improve upon? Like, what, what, in your opinion, is the best way to not solve that issue, but improve the efficiency of that issue or the productivity of that issue? So that is an issue, in my opinion, um, that is actually much higher up. I, I think this is a systemic problem of the NHS. Often we hear the term red tape. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. We talk about... Yeah, 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 red it, tape, right? yeah. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I think sometimes that, that word in itself, it actually quite it irritates me um, because I think it's almost like an excuse for the way things are. It's sort of, that's the way they are. And I think... The NHS has become very, very, very bureaucratic in nature. And it's very, very almost, you're, there's more of an emphasis on ticking boxes to show that outcomes are met, as opposed to actually spending that, that genuine time with a person. And I know myself and you, we've talked ourselves informally about the benefits of human connection. I'm just thinking as a doctor and a patient, thinking about that relationship, you know, the importance of true human connection. How much can somebody 
really connect with someone. I think 10 minutes of the consultation filling forms and then three minutes examining it. Yeah, okay. I mean, so that, that's a systemic thing, like you said, which is down to, which basically been sort of trickled down from government policy. That's what we're trying to say. Uh, that, that, that's my perception. I could be wrong. I'm not, I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I think now, of course, this so, appears to be something that's higher up. Sure. So, so going forward, if that was a change, just, just, you know, hypothetically, if you were, you know, given the reins and you were told you can manage the situation, change it for the better, you would say that shouldn't be in a government policy trickling down. It should be dealt with in the hands of doctors and nurses and, you know, how many other ample people in that field who can actually manage it better and get more efficiency out of the whole process. Is that what we're trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you look at, if you look at other countries as models for that. So I think if you look at Germany, Germany is a private consortium. So whilst they have a private model of healthcare, it, the, the, their equivalent of a department of health is a consortium of clinicians. So what I've led to believe. Um, and actually, when you look at the decisions that then reign from a top, as a top-down approach from the top, uh, leading to all, all, all the rele relevant clinicians on the front line, if you have it, um, I think the decisions are quite sensible. Um, it would be that there's more of an ability to be empathetic with the clinician as if they were in their shoes. Whereas I think what you've got in this country is you, unfortunately, politicians who don't have any experience or any knowledge of, of delivering patient care or knowing even about anything about patient safety. And I think what that does is that opens up a whole new can of worms about risk and, and actually the risk that we could be potentially posing with cert certain policies that are ingrained in this country. I mean, I think that's going to get me to start talking about something else. And I, and I think maybe it's a good time to come on to it. Go for you know, it, go for it, please, please go for it, yeah the organization public health england and i think that that organization is in everyone's it's at the forefront of everyone's minds at the moment in, in in light of covid um and actually i think when you look at what they when they the, when phe as, as an organization they set up their aims i think you've got to look at the response to this viral outbreak and this public health outbreak and actually say public health england have not had any rain on the situation in terms of they've not been able to 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 use the knowledge they've collected and the information that they've subsequently disseminated in my opinion is actually inaccurate so let me give you an example I mean, we talked about swabbing earlier. Let's talk about when somebody has a cardiac arrest. Um, and again, for our, for our viewers at home, I hope they all know what a cardiac arrest is, but it's essentially when somebody stops breathing, they, no, they show no signs of life. That, that's the, that's sure. the kind of thing. Yeah. So, so no, sure. no, no pulse. Uh -huh. and, and, and generally, um, so I think when you look at the UK, you, you, you've got to think something odd is going on here. So um, Public Health England put out their own guidelines 
for whether, so remember earlier I told you that you have non-aerosol generating procedures and aerosol generating procedures. Right. And the non-aerosol generated procedures are sufficient for normal surgical fitted mask. Whereas the in aerosol generated procedures need an enhanced PPE. So you need full facial protection, FFP3, etc. And you can use the face shield, everything. Now, PHE's guidelines, they decided to put out their own guidelines about resuscitation. And they claimed that CPR was non-aerosol generated. Now, the Recess Council of the UK that is in charge of putting out guidelines with regards to chest compressions, with regards to, in general, providing CPR in the event of a cardiac arrest. Now, how is it that some hospital trusts are following the Recess Council guidelines, which actually mimic the World Health Organization guidelines about CPR and chest compressions, but some hospital trusts in this country are following PHE guidelines, which contradict it and say that chest compressions are non-aerosol generated. So, so why would, okay, well, I mean, that's a good question and something which I myself obviously don't know. So what in your interpretation is the reason for that? What is the benefit of PHE going against the, essentially the World Health Organization's recommendation in that situation? I mean, my personal take on it is, again, there's a, is something a lot more deep-rooted. So I, I think it, it, it actually serves to manifest almost a, as a summary of how the UK has actually handled this on the whole. So they, they want to show the world that they can handle things, that they can do things their way. And actually part of the PHE guidelines and PHE drawing up their own guidelines and actually having to quickly back down and change their guidelines to be in concordance with the WHO, which in itself shows you that a blunder was made. I, I oh, So just... just just for everyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, what what exam, what 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 sort of situation you're talking about? Yeah? So the, the 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 example I'm talking about is what I was just informing you about with the chest compressions. That three days later, PHE had to update their guidance to say that yes, chest compressions is aerosol generating. So in the event of a cardiac arrest, the only thing you could do without enhanced PPE is actually just put the defibrillator pads on someone's chest in terms of getting ready to shock them. But actually chest compressions are aerosol generating and you would need a full FFP3 and, and facial protection as well as the patient will need a normal mask on as well while you're delivering the chest compressions. So I guess for the benefit of our audience, what I'm trying to say is, guidance was put out by them and it was quickly changed to to complement the, the the other relevant guidelines but i guess the biggest question is what was happening in that interim where where so there, to me there's no 
evidence of any any strategy in what they were doing there's no evidence of any there's no evidence that a normal surgical fitted mask is suitable when delivering chest compressions so i guess how where have they plucked that out from and why is it that they can make that decision and then put a whole workforce at risk in the process that's the wider issue do you, do you think i i get what you're saying you're you're you're, you're basically unsure of why this guidance came out from PHE. And do you think PHE obviously went for the government? Your thinking is there is almost, there is something to hide kind of in the sense of, in terms of uh, equipment and resources. Uh, okay, so we're talking about face masks and PPE, you know, and testing for some extent. This isn't available at a sufficient enough a level for all these frontline workers. So, this is kind of the route they kind of have to take where they spin stories and they make up sort of narratives where they don't look like they're kind of at fault as a government, right? Forget, forget that as a, you know, clinician side of things as a government, they don't have all these things in place. Otherwise, if they did, they will be testing just as much as the Germans would or the South Koreans would have you know, this and that, and they would have had enough PP from the onset, you know, without having X amount of NHS uh, clinicians and, you know, nurses and other staff, deaths, et cetera, et cetera. So is this the kind of thinking we're going upon now? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I mean, but then I guess I would probably say, um, this, that that reflects upon a wider issue that I mean taking it away from sort of everything that's happening on the ground why do does this country not have the ability to manufacture its own PPE so I like I mean it, it shouldn't be hard to make an apron well you it know actually can be... I can I can I just jump in just right there why is it that a country of the size of the UK, and I don't mean in terms of surface area, I don't mean in terms of population, but I mean in terms of global influence, which obviously is quite large. We're not talking about economy or anything like that. But we know historically how big British Empire and all that was. How comes a country such, you know, such as the size of this country, and we can even, you know, cohort and go to USA as well. How comes you don't have stockpiles of this equipment available when you're getting significant guidance and notifications from people experts sorry in the field that this is something which has to be monitored this is something which is going to be a catastrophe potentially that's going to arrive in the next x amount of years and we're not talking about we're not talking about like um the sun blowing up or you know an asteroid hitting the country uh, hitting the world this and the other, we're talking about something which is very relevant. We're not even talking on the scale of climate, climate change, right? Global warming. Because yes, that is the biggest issue that's hitting the world right now and has been for X amount of years. But this is something which is in the here and now. And when we say, yeah, there may be a severe threat for a pandemic to hit any moment. And when we say any moment in the world rhetoric, that means in the next, what, 
five to 15 years or one to 10 years. Do you know what I mean? Something along that time scale. So why aren't you stockpiling these kind of equipments? Why aren't you getting factories ready to produce this kind of equipment, whether it be ventilators and this and that? And I know, I know what the government is saying. I know they're saying, okay, we've never hit that limit. We've never had to actually utilize any of this stuff. But just for argument's sake, if you did, that, that, that whole thing was protect the NHS. The biggest propaganda statement was protect the NHS. And that reason was, there was nothing about saving lives. You know, I may be wrong, but that, I don't think they actually cared about how many lives was lost. I think it was properly to do with generally protect the NHS because if we get down under, we're screwed as a country and our policies will be literally taken apart left, right and center. So this is it. And this is the problem I have. This, this is why I don't seem to understand. So I don't know. I might, I might, I might just be going off on a whim here, but you know, what, what can you add to that? Yeah, no, I think, I think you've raised some really, really good points there actually. Um, but I think, I think it, the NHS, I mean, there's a lot of different issues that you you need to start with addressing. But I think let's go back to your point. I think we can talk about the NHS another day. I think it's a topic in itself. <laughs> sure, you can appreciate. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. But, but I think let's go back to the topic that you said. And I think one thing I've been amazed by is is the 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 sort of this multi meet this multi-million media campaign on, you know, saving the NHS and sort of, like you said, save our key workers and stay at home. So billboards, uh, signposts, literally, you know, it's, it's covered on our streets. You can see it on it, everywhere on the roads. And I, I, I genuinely, I'm finding it in many ways, like you said, it's, 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 it's a, it's a huge degree of propaganda um, that, people can think that this organization is the so-called pride of the UK. Um, I mean, personally, when you see it on the ground, I think if you, if you saw it from our side, I don't think you'd be saying it's the pride of the UK. I think you can respect workers who work for the organization and, and do work hard and do put their life on the line. But I think, the organization on the whole, I think 100% what you said is accurate, that this is, a, this is some sort of propaganda because the way that the organization is run is, is not efficient. Um, and, and actually that, that's to do with the point that we were talking about earlier, that it's, it's, being, it's being run by people with no experience. Um, and, and, and unfortunately, it's... It, a lot of these people who have no much, not much experience, they, through their contacts, they tend to rise through the NHS. And um, these, these people get roles that are individually created for them. Um, and it gives them a sense of purpose, a sense of importance. I think the reality of it is between me and you, and I think for our, for our audience, I think they might laugh as well, that those people are not important, uh, as in they don't know anything. But <laughs> maybe, maybe that's a bit, of, um, bit of me, a bit of my clinician side biting back. But I think you've got to appreciate that it's, it almost feels like you've got all these skills and tools and, that you've developed 
to do your job to the best of your ability, but actually somebody else with no skills, no qualifications, is able to tell me what to do and how to do my job. So interestingly enough, I got a... Well, you know what, sorry, uh, sorry, sorry, Dr. Fowler, just a button right there, because you made a very, very good point. And I don't think, a lot of the audience might not appreciate what we're trying to say here, because you're giving an example of someone who is almost autonomy in government to make decisions which affect the whole of the NHS. Example was Jeremy Hunt, right? Who you know very well because you were on the picket line. Now, if I asked you, what was his background? What was his experience as being a clinician in any sense of the in any sense of the word? I asked you that. What 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 would it have been? And I'm not I'm not trying to dig out people in in terms of you know their roles and this because people work hard. They get to where they want to be in certain you know careers and aspects of life. That's fine. You don't have to be an expert in every field. You kind of maybe work your way up. But this is such a niche field in the sense of you need to know what you're dealing with, right? You're dealing with life and death. I don't think you can get any more importance on that kind of field than anywhere else in the world. So if I asked you, what was his experience, you know, and how much do you respect that kind of um, boss, if you like, you know, how much of a boss was he to you? What would you say back? I mean, I think that's that's a good question. Um, So the only experience he's actually had of, Dealing with a, de- dealing with patients is I think for one to two months he was a hospital porter. So um, again, my concerns with that is and absolutely got a lot of respect for all the porters out there. They do a great job. Honestly, they they they're, they're actually a fundamental element of each hospital. So uh, to any of our audience out there that are porters, big up, big up because they're doing big shifts. Absolutely, absolutely. But, but, but no, I think my concerns would be, um, you know, as I said, he's been a hospital porter, but he's not ever been a clinician. Um, he's never had that diagnostic side. He's never had maybe that therapeutic side that nurses demonstrate. He's never had that pharmacological side that maybe a pharmacist will demonstrate. He's never had that therapeutic angle in terms of physio OT I think as a wider part of the MDT what I would call a multidisciplinary team he's not a clinician and I think fundamentally that is a problem him telling us how to make our decisions or what to do it might not be in line with the best interest of the patient does that make sense 100% not 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 just what decisions you make also how much you should earn how much you should work a week uh, you know, I'm trying to say from an experience point of view, I'm not, I'm not trying to dig out his role because his, not his role, but people who do his roles, obviously they're absolutely valid. They're completely respected in the quality roles to do. What I'm trying to say is how can you then go ahead and say junior doctors, this and the other, should be working X amount of overtime and get paid X amount. How do you have any emphasis and input on saying that you, you have no sort of, leg to stand on that 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 that's not correct in my opinion do you know what I mean that just doesn't it, I, I don't know because I'm not in that field but I'm trying to say is that doesn't make sense to me that's what I'm trying to understand where does the central argument come from then? so I think uh I think apologies because we did we were sort of getting towards that earlier on and I sort of wavered off so I think starting with uh the junior doctor contracts um 
and like you rightfully identified, Jeremy Hunt uh, deciding that junior doctors won't get a pay rise. I think what happened after that was uh, the student nursing bursaries got scrapped. Um, and actually, the amount of people that were going and studying nursing suddenly dropped. Uh, consequence to the striking and the junior doctor contracts, obviously, you had a large proportion of workforce wanting to leave. Um, they did migrate successfully. Various numbers of my colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Singapore, respectively, all over the world. And I think what you're asking... A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of these people you're saying who migrated across, none of them have managed to obtain British citizenship as well. They're working on less than the British citizenship nurse or whatever would work for. Yet during a crisis like this, they're literally, as Boris was saying, he was what he was being dealt with by a Portuguese nurse and I don't know, maybe another nationality, but they don't see citizenship like this because they're still immigrants and immigrants are obviously a taboo subject where they're not wanted, right? So what happens to these kind of people who actually now when we're protecting the NHS or we're getting people from abroad, you know, what, what, what are we doing to help them? What are we doing to make them feel like welcome and helpful? Do you know what I mean? Because they have helped us. They've saved the fucking country, more or less. So I, I think you, you've probably taken us away from where we were going, and I think we're going to go down a totally different angle. Yeah, apologies, now, but apologies. <laughs> but, 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 but I do... No, it's okay, because I think, honestly, what you've touched upon is probably... It's quite... It's highly sensitive topic... But it's is this something I don't, I don't know enough about because I'm not in the industry and I'm not a clever clogs, but I'm just intrigued about it. I mean, I want to know more about it. So obviously I've got the right man in front of me, Dr. Furlow. Sorry, take away, mate. Mate, I, I actually think you are, you, you, you've got it bang on. And I think you've, um, you've probably touched upon a topic, as I said, that's probably highly sensitive, but highly accurate at the same time. So let, when you take, the NHS workforce and you take the clinicians as a proportion. Now, when I include clinicians, I include everyone from the MDTT. So doctors, nurses, pharmacists, OTs, physios, um, specialist Absolutely. nurse practitioners. Yeah. Now, yeah. when you think about a workforce, it's interesting that the topic immigration always comes up. Um, you look at the makeup of the NHS, and traditionally it was always immigrants of the former Commonwealth. And then as things progressed, just like anywhere else, the migration became a little bit different, where you'd have, like you said, your migrants from Europe, um, initially Eastern Europe, then Central Europe, Southern Europe, but also there's a wider, wider proportion of immigrants. So there's Philipp people coming from Philippines, um, from Brazil, respectively, so from all over the world. And I think what you've touched upon is a real, real interesting dynamic going on in this country when we talk about what was happening pre-COVID with Brexit. Um, and actually, a lot of lies that maybe general public were fed here in terms of immigration and uh, uh, sort of the you know, immigrants take their jobs and, um, you know, 
subsequently people who are native to this country they don't feel that they have the same opportunities or whatnot but again it's interesting because historically they, the NHS has always been heavily reliant on a migrant workforce and um, what I find very interesting is that in other countries you tend to find with doctors in particular but also nurses um, irrespective of the pay or, or, or the sort of financial gains there's a there's an element of respect that is shown and actually that's not generally transcending in society here and I wonder if that has as I said a deeper connotation which you've touched upon which is the fact that it has always been an organization where the the frontline workers and the clinicians as you have it are generally of a migrant population from all different countries across the world so I'm wondering does that have a societal impact does that have does that mean that various people they don't give the respect that they would give to a doctor if it wasn't, if the doctor was from the UK and was Caucasian per se? If you were a doctor, born, born here, studied here, etc., you might be from a um, minority uh, demographic. Would you rather be a doctor in this country or go overseas and work in another country? I think for the topic of race or thinking about sort of maybe those inner feelings of uh, is, is there a bit of institutional racism maybe, maybe some of our audience will think that's again a bold comment but again um, I don't think that would be a sole reason for me at this stage to want to leave because I think you can recognize... Rega regardless of race, like regardless of race, would you go overseas or would you stay within the NHS? I think I'll definitely go overseas. I think... Um, and what's the I, reason for me, No, I, I think I've got a few reasons. Um, I think, but number one reason is um, sort of quality of life. Um, I've, I've spent half my life working for the NHS uh, the last decade. And to be honest, um, night, rotating on from a cycle of nights to days, Tonight's to then work long days over a weekend. Don't get to see family, don't get to see friends. And I mean, in the current setting of COVID, obviously isolating from family and friends, uh, it's quite it's quite challenging. It's not. But how, how do you see not, that improving overseas? For example, do you know, do you do you know for a fact that will improve or something? So I think that's that's a fair point, and I think uh, so. Thinking about somewhere like Australia or New Zealand, um, I'd have I'd have the ability to locum uh, uh, nine to five, three days a week, um, and then I like to hike. Um, I like to sort of I like outdoor activities. So I think for me, thinking about the UK, the UK, the climate's not the best in the world, is it? So um, I'm thinking about uh, having that sort of balance. I think having worked in the NHS, you find your, your, your work sort of governs your life. And actually 
when it gets to that level, you've got to question what kind of quality of life are you leading. What, 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 what's the best thing in your, in your opinion and your experience about working in the NHS? I think that's a really good question because obviously we've touched upon a lot of negatives. So it's nice to come. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I think, I think just because we're trying to talk about the current day situation and obviously there's a lot of questions that's being asked. And I think with anything which sort of connotations around death, it's always going to bring up issues about politicians and, you know, um, you know, everything, everything surrounding it. So just in your experience, like you said, you've worked in the NHS for over a decade. Well, well what's the positives? Yeah, you're right. Let's, let's change a topic. So we change the tone, basically. No, no I think it's a good idea. I think um, your question is, for me, I think I would probably say the best thing is some of the colleagues that I've met over the years and the teams I've worked with. So you, as I said, I think, I feel like maybe a lot of my criticisms are they should be directed higher up because one thing that is brilliant about the NHS is the is the clinicians on the ground and the doctors and the nurses um, of different specialties. So I've I've had the fortune of working in orthopedics, I've had the fortune of working in acute medicine, psychiatry, neurology, um, urology. Um, breast surgery, uh, generally colleagues across the ground like such great people and genuinely there to try and make a difference. I guess that's when that, that bit about the NHS getting a bit political comes in. Every clinician tries to go to work and deliver care to their patient and nothing more and go home. But I think, unfortunately, that's not the reality of what happens in the NHS. But definitely, biggest positives for me is some of the staff I've met over the years, incredible people, and some really, really knowledgeable people and some really, really talented people out there as well in their relevant specialties. So where, where, where would you find your hands most tied upon working with the NHS? Like, you know, trying to deliver good... When I, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be using a different field, but good customer service, good uh, delivery of value and results. Obviously, this is a completely different field that we're um, giving, you know, uh, connotations of. But mm-hmm. within that, you know, what would you say is the worst? So, so are you are you asking what would we do in te- so how would we deliver how would what would be my suggestion in terms Absolutely. of delivery? How would you improve? How would you improve so every think- single aspect, which is basically not up to scratch or maybe not hundred uh, percent efficient or productive or below par? Sorry. So I don't have any major extensive complicated answer for this. My answer is quite simple. Um, I would actually say it's going back to basic steps. So we need to stop focusing on breach times. We need to actually have more patient contact. So what that means is if somebody comes in and they're taking up your time, you need to give them that time. It shouldn't be that you're working towards a target of a breach time. Does that make sense? So I'm even just thinking about... Yeah, but what about, what about people 
what about people like hypochondriacs, people like that, who have basically been influenced by over-exaggerated media speculation and suddenly they see potential symptoms about the latest you know, epidemic or whatever on the news and they think, oh shit, I've got all those symptoms. Yeah, let me go see my doctor. Not in a rude way, not wasting their time, but that is a human, human sort of uh, issue. Like, it occurs, right? And how do you see that um, dealing with your efficiency and stuff? Okay, so, I mean, I, I, would, I think there's, there's, there's probably different schools of thought on this, but for me, uh, I think that's not wasting time because I think, for me, that hypochondriac could potentially need some medication to calm them down. Um, they could they could be suffering from a level of anxiety. All right, so let, let me let me let me let me just track back because hyper. I, I don't mm -hmm. understand the terminology enough to um to maybe mm -hmm. explain myself well enough. But that was just a terminology which uh, mm -hmm. kind of um uh sort of engulfed what I was trying to say, but maybe not to enough mm -hmm. of the degree watch so do you want do you want people, a medical but, definition for hypochondriacism well, no, well, well, yeah you can give it to the set but what i'm trying to say is people it, you don't have to be a high hypochondriac to see something and then it manifests in your head to think that you have something and that might be the extreme being a hypochondriac mm -hmm. but obviously there's a lot lower tiers where you can be that kind of uh, you know show those kind of symptoms or think you have this kind mm -hmm. of symptom so things like that, how, how does that come into fur? Is that still something that you'd rather, you know, not waste time on, but still see patients daily for? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, again, I think whilst they can appreciate, I think the perspective you're trying to come from is that actually there are more imminent people that need treatment or people with, with, with COVID or with respective other physical health problems that need more imminent treatment. I can appreciate that. But I think what you've got to, we've got to remember is, is that what we're going to have now is a real, real problem on our hands when the measures are lifted and we try to resume to normal and then we go to the second wave and third wave or whatnot. I think we're going to have a real problem with people's states of mind following long periods of isolation and i think that person so let's just go back to what you were saying hypochondria i think sometimes it, there's a there's a danger to confuse a hypochondriac from somebody who's giving you a hypochondrial presentation so a hypochondriac is somebody who could be exaggerating those symptoms but a hypochondriacal symptom is not generally someone coming and saying, I've got chest symptoms. It's them saying, I've got COVID or I've got uh, cancer. They, they'll say they've got a diagnosis. Does that make sense? Yeah, but <clears throat> I'm trying to say, when, when, you're, when you're spelling out symptoms of something, again, purely by example, something like COVID, which is the symptoms are so vague that they could result, mm -hmm. they, the symptoms could result in and numerous amount of different illnesses. There must be so many people who are thinking, oh shit, I think I've got COVID. Because the symptoms that are that are spelled out, and this is not nothing, no dig at any doctors or government or anything. This is just a general human sort of conception. This is 
this is what it is, right? Like if you say to someone, you've got shortness of breath, you might have gone for a two mile run or a 2K run, which you've never done in your life. But because suddenly you're in lockdown, it's something you're going to pick up, which a lot of the population have done. You might be short of breath and you might suddenly think, oh, shit, I'm shy of breath. I think I've got COVID. This, this is happening. This isn't sort of um, a make-believe thing. This is genuinely happening. Or you've got sniffles. You've got the sniffles in April. And normally, and if you have a sniffles in April, you wouldn't, look, you wouldn't look anything into it. You would just think, I've got hay fever. I've got maybe the common cold. I've got this. I've got that. But suddenly, because of this impotence of media and this and the other you suddenly think you got and i'm not again i'm not having a dig at the media because it is the hot topic at the moment obviously but what i'm trying to say is would you still spare your medical time on these kind of patients and say yeah i need to give patient care to these people i need to give face time to these people and you know potentially not potentially but drive potentially a um i guess a potential but drive a queue <laughs> of people who need to see you might not need to see you. I mean, I, I, I don't understand. But, you know, what, what's, the, um, what's the way around that, if anything? So I think that's, I think that's going to require really, really good collaboration with um, mental health workers and um, mental health specialists because um, I do believe there is a need for these services. So, so I mean, I don't, you, I think what you're trying to say is somebody like that coming into A&E is obviously inappropriate. I agree with you. But I think that doesn't mean that there's not a need for a service that can speak to them over the phone or um, have, like you said, a face-to-face -face consultation, video consultation, a service in line with addressing their anxieties or their inner worries. And I do think that is actually as equally important as physical health because when you think about a public as a whole as we, we we often tend to draw in on the people who are unwell and the most vulnerable what about the people who physically are well there's a lot a large proportion of the population that are physically well but i would be wondering is their state of mind well i'm not so no listen sure. let, let, let me let me jump in there you're, you're spot on what i'm trying to say the, the, the argument I was trying to make is uh, basically taking up face-to-face -face time for a clinician to diagnose and talk to these people. I, I, I wasn't talking about um, video contact and you know, video consultations and all that, because that was, a, that was meant to be a next question. Um, but video consultations, it seems based on this uh, COVID approach, it seems like it's gonna be a future like impetus where you don't need to go to your GP's office for every sniff and every, I don't know, every little niggle that you got, that you can deal with potentially up to 50% of people who have issues who normally go to GP surgery in their local community. So that's what I was trying to say. And I was just trying to say where you said we need more people coming face to face. This is what I was trying to say. Do you really need that many people or is it kind of a turning of the tide where actually it's showing us that we don't need that many people um not 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 wasting time but you know taking up resources which face to face does take more time if you if you turn on your screen on the laptop or something you will basically save time than a person commuting from xyz in their community in their town and going into the to gp or going into the hospital you know etc 
and uh, you as a doctor or a clinician or whatever can diagnose them or talk to them and maybe you know calm them down or ease their you know whatever their issues are but that that's kind of what i was getting to but obviously maybe i took the long route around well, no, it's, I think you, you're, you're, you're getting to a very, very good point. I think thinking about it and what you're saying, I understand. But I think it's really important that we liaise with our colleagues in mental health and there are adequate services that can still target these people. But I think actually coming back to your point, I think maybe you misunderstood me. What I was trying to initially say was not that we reduced the face-to-face -face consultations or we increased them. What I was talking about was when people are unwell that are in front of you, acutely unwell and deteriorating, rather than having more time focusing on getting all the paperwork filled, meeting a time limit, just focusing on the patient in front of you. So I understand now all the stuff you were bringing up. I think in reference to the point going back, it's, it's more about the, the, the really unwell people that do turn up to hospital that are unwell. Can we actually have the full time of the consultation with them? So that means that that gives you time to investigate, to give management, at least to start management. I feel like often here in this system that you're so rushed with the consultation, you've barely had a time to investigate, and subsequently it's a knock-on effect. Does that make sense? Um, I, feel, I, feel I missed the last bit of that, man. I think there's a bit of... Um... The speaker issue. Just repeat that again. What sorry, about now? Can, sorry, yeah, yeah. Sorry, just repeat that. Just repeat that last bit again. Sorry, man. I, I just think that there's got to be more emphasis on time spent with the patient, which allows initiation of treatment, investigations, and subsequently further management and treatment. But I think in what you tend to find in A and E's in this country is they're at such a pressure to meet the breach time to make sure that a patient doesn't breach that actually they do the bare minimum investigations they've barely given any treatment and subsequently unwell patients that are acutely deteriorating end up on acute medical units and they've had hardly any treatment i just think the whole process is very delayed and it's because again it goes to a sort of higher up issue that everything is about meeting targets and demonstrating outcome measures but actually if you want the truth what outcomes are we actually showing it feels like oh you know that's a really good question they demonstrate, what, what what are your metrics what are your kpis that you're trying to address being a national health so, service that's a, that's a really really good question by you and actually one one um one sort of scale they've developed is called HONOS, which is called Health Outcomes National. I'm not actually 100% sure, so apologies to viewers, but it's called That's HONOS. That. I know the abbrevi abbreviation. And actually, that is, a, is apparently 
um, a rating scale to measure outcomes. But again, I would go as far as saying they've invented a scale, and Honos is not the only one. There's loads of different outcome measures they've developed. But again, how do these truly demonstrate that the outcomes have happened? I feel like it's a tick box exercise. That, that, that seems to be the whole purpose, not purpose, but it seems to be a whole, I don't know the right, I don't know the right way to say it, but if you go to the NHS, like you said, if you go to A&E, you get given a clipboard and a form and you have to check boxes, you have to write in information and it is a checkbox exercise, right? And then I'm assuming the people on the other end, the clinicians who maybe give you a scan or maybe check you once over or do this and the other, they also have a checkbox. And that checkbox then gets put into a system, et cetera. And then you come out the other side and they, get make, they make you basically see where you have to go next. And that next step is almost like X amount of weeks or months away. So it's clearly not efficient process, right? Yeah, I think, um, I think like you said, it, 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 I mean, I would say it's far from efficient. If you wanted the honest, the honest truth, it's far from efficient. But we only do uh, honesty. We only do honesty on this pod, Dr. Furlow. <laughs> only honesty. That's how we got that's you, Dr. Wanted, Furlow. That's why I wanted to be here. I'm very glad to be here. You know that. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for having me. We're glad to have you, honestly. So, um, can I ask you a question? All day long, mate. So, what's what's your take on the concept of across the world, thinking about now financial gains, and obviously the fact that my name is Dr. Furlough. Ironically enough, I haven't been furloughed. Um, I'm just thinking about Sweden's response to key workers, particularly nurses and doctors. Uh, they gave them a baseline pay salary of 2.5 times their normal, their normal baseline. Uh, well, what do you think of that? And do you think that us as doctors here should be getting the pay rise? Um. All right, so to answer the first part of the question, Sweden's response, um, if you look at the graphs and the figures and the actual metrics, it looks incredible. Um, if you look at their actual number of deaths in comparison to other parts of Scandinavia, like uh, Denmark and Norway in comparative, comparative sense of their population, it's actually worse off. Um, I think you, what you see in the daily briefings in the UK, you don't actually see the other parts of Scandinavia, you just see Sweden, which for some reason I don't understand because if you're trying to make a case of your approach being the right approach, you would put other Scandinavian countries into fruition and show how they're actually beating via social distancing measures countries like Sweden. And so Sweden, as we know, is kind of you know widespread news that they decided on basic, very, very, very limited social distancing measures that basically carried on business as usual. Um, the second part of your question was, um, what was that again, sorry mate? Second part of your question? It was, it was actually quite a personal question. It was about, do you, like, in oh, okay. sorry, to I remember, I remember your question. The yeah, the, the, the pay thing, I think, uh, I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast. Um, I think personally there should be something called, well, you can call it whatever you like, but it should, 
there should be a concept of hazard pay and it should apply to every frontline and key worker who is out there, you know, literally giving, potentially risking their lives to keep the lights on in this country and in the world. And I don't think there should be literally two seconds worth of thought about that. You should literally just do that. And maybe when the dust settles, you might look at it again and think, okay, fine, we were maybe a bit busy, so we didn't look at it now. But in hindsight, let's go back and give all these people who done their deed, who done the country proud, who done the world proud, you know, kept people from starving, kept people from dying, you know, kept people's minds from going crazy, et cetera, et cetera. Hazard pay should be an absolute, it should literally be written in the constitution. And obviously that might be American terminology, but it is what it is. But yeah, hazard pay, in my opinion, is a um, shadow of a doubt. It's a, it's a no-brainer. And I'm not an ec economist, but, you know, let the economist deal with the, out, you know, the outfall of that. So there you go. So did you say hazard pay is the, the American term? I think risk pay is the, the British term, no? <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the, the terminologies are. I don't really care on it, but it, it, it says what it does in the tin on it. So, um, absolutely. There you go. And before you go that, right. before you got that phrase wrong as well. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know about the American phrases, but yeah, hazard pay, risk pay, whatever you want to call it. But I certainly think. It's an interesting one because you often hear, especially in line of COVID, uh, the fact that we are frontline workers. And uh, often people describe when they're referring to a pandemic, there's a lot of comparison to a reference of war. And, uh, and like you said, you've talked about hazard pay or risk pay. Um, and we think about people going to war and subsequently being compensated and and, and actually then I, I'm also thinking about people I know that work for petroleum organizations or um, and they go on they go on relevant field trips and sub subsequently get risk money again uh, I find it interesting especially that comparison um, that direct comparison of, of sort of going to war and this 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 comparison of COVID-19 to sort of this experience was last sort of felt during the second world war and um well that, that, that that's where the um the nhs was born from post world war ii right in the uk and mm -hmm. um it's actually interesting it's actually listen i was, I was listening i was sorry reading about something this other day and it was showing how the actual idea of a national health service was actually brought into fruition in like 1909 by uh, Ms. Beatrice Webb, who was actually a socialist at the time. I'm not gonna, I'm not, we're not gonna go into politics now, but she brought that idea into fruition in 1909. And it wasn't until literally nearly 50, 40 years of people, you know, talking about this and making stances and statements about this idea coming into our, you know, into our society that it actually came in. And obviously times of war is when people I think make the biggest changes and make the biggest differences. Because during the war, you didn't have to worry about there not being a national service. There was, you know, there was casualties of war and everyone 
sort of stuck around them and helped them survive or you know treated them etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's where the national service is born from the you know from the 1950s or 49 whatever it was but so this is seems almost on par with that it's such an extraordinary event that there's got to be something which comes out of this and um i'm just intrigued as to what will occur so yeah so just for your history lesson, um, the NHS was born in, uh, on the 5th of July, 1948, and he was actually born uh, in Tredegar, a small uh, mining valley in Manchester. South Wales. Oh. No, 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 in South Wales by a gentleman called Aniron Bevan. As part well, of it was a, it was a, from what I heard, it was a health minister at the time who actually Absolutely. done it. Yes. Yeah, so oh, I thought I thought it was in Manchester. No, no, no. So it's in uh, uh, Tredegar, South Wales, and um, this chap and Irene Bevan, they, they yeah, he was part of Clement. He was part of Clement Attlee's government, nineteen forty-eight. Yeah. But Beatrice Webb, like I said, in nineteen oh-nine, she's the one who literally laid out the foundation for it. She was a socialist, and it took almost fifty years for her ideas to come into fruition. And the only reason it did is because of World War II, because basically they undertook a socialist stance of forget private healthcare, forget this. We've got people, we've got civilians, we've got war heroes that needed um, looking after. So let's look after the whole country. So, so I think what we're, what we're demonstrating here is probably, a, is probably one of the reasons why um, there is that kind of notion that the NHS is the pride of the UK. I think historically, and what you've referenced it to post-Second World War, becoming this essential part... Well, listen, listen, let, 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 Dr. Fowler, let me, let, let me pose one question to you. If you're, if you're to cut spending on... Um, if, you're, if you're to cut spending in the you know, public domain... Let's say, obviously, the, the amount of spending, you know, we know the different segments. Let's just say we have it, we're down to, we, we've cut spending on all other aspects for whatever reason. Let's say it's so horrendous. All we've got left is defense and the NHS. Not you as a, a doctor, but you as a citizen, what would you rather cut spending on? Defense, the military, et cetera, et cetera, or the NHS? It's a difficult question because I think the reality of it is cutting spending of either could be harmful. I think it's a question of what's less harmful. Um, I personally, being 100% honest, would probably cut the spending of the NHS um, in the sense that it's already not operating at an optimal level. Um, and actually the service is being delivered, I, you question. And another thing is, if they do get the funds, I'd be questioning who gets their hands on the funds and how they actually manage that and whether it gets optimally used. Does that make sense at all? So I, I'd probably go for the defence. And that's actually... Wait, sorry, you, you'd, you'd, cut the, sorry you'd, cut, you'd say you'd cut the spending on defence, right? No, sorry, 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 sorry. I've I've articulated it wrong. I was actually thinking that I'd probably 
um, cut the cut the spending um, in terms of the healthcare because I'd be wondering about when all this all this money that the healthcare is healthcare system is getting. I'd be I'm slightly worried that it's ending up in the hands of people who are not un, unfortunately able to manage it. In I know you're 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 shaking your head right now, but. Um, I think I've got to be completely brutally honest. And actually, that is all you're doing is you're bringing me on to a wider issue, which when we think about cutting money for defence, um, at a time like this, that's potentially very dangerous. Uh, there's a proxy war going on between the US and China. And actually, I think not more so now than ever, we need to be thinking about China as a threat, Russia as a threat, and generally there are, there, are, there are wider global threats out there. And I think the UK needs to be ready. And actually, there's been a bit of a shift. I don't know if you agree. There's been a bit of a shift in balance in terms of economic superpowers of late. Sorry, continue, Mick, continue. I think China, inevitably have, have, has always been in the backdrop this growing rising superpower and i think arguably now they would argue that they are on top america always likes to to believe they're leading the way um i'm not entirely sure i don't know what you think about uh, i think that's a fact i think america is the biggest superpower in the world like bar no one like without a shadow of a doubt the amount they spend on their military defense, there's literally no one who can touch them. So I, I think that's a given. I mean, that's why I, that's why I pose the question to you. Being a small island country in the UK, you know, talking about defense, it's actually not as big a deal as if you went to America and said to them, do you want to cut spending to your um, defense budget? They would literally laugh your head off. All they'll do is increase it. That's all they do. They increase their defense budget, like probably weekly. So. You know, that's what I'm intrigued about, really. But that's why I thought NHS in the UK, that's something they don't have. Again, I mean, you can make your arguments. They don't have that national health service in the in, in USA. So they maybe have a little bit more money then towards that. But there's still ways it's fucked. So, I mean, that's that's a, that's an interesting topic in itself. Um, the fact that America is a private system and the UK is... You know, obviously, this free healthcare system. And again, I apologise for the audience who wanted to hear that. You know, the budget should go to the NHS. But I guess the reason I haven't gone for that is because I genuinely believe that there is money there for the NHS. I'm just wondering how it's truly spent. Does that make sense at all? Okay, and, and yeah, fair I mean, you're, you're the only one. No, no, that's fair enough. Comes. You're you're the only one inside of the system. Uh, on this podcast, obviously, from, from the two of us who can make that call. So that's fair enough. Um, yeah, fair enough, man. Um, yeah, sorry, continue. I think, um, like, the, the, the argument about defence, and I think sometimes it can come across in, in a way that are we trying to become like the, the US and demonstrate military power? I think that wasn't what I was get going at. I was getting at the idea of 
actually the UK being able to protect itself as we go forward. And I think as China emerges as this growing superpower. And I think inevitably the UK, with its alliances with the US, will fall to be part of this proxy war some way, somehow. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, no, that's fair enough, man. That's a good, that's a fair enough stance to take. Um, all right, well, we've taken up plenty of time, man. Um, just before you go, let's just uh, pose one more question to you. I had a few more questions. I've got to think which one's the most um, entertaining question. Um, well, yeah, all right. So your thoughts on the whole, whole field not forget the NHS, not forget the NHS, but going forward, UK Health Service, going forward, what do you think in terms of pandemics, right? Because there's been a lot of noise about pandemics coming to fruition in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It may be a norm. What do you think is the best sort of, um, what's the best sort of stance to take going forward? to deal with this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously, obviously, I think the whole government, the whole public, everyone has learned from this a lot. But going forward, what do you think is the best way to deal with this potential threat, which may be a potential um, regular threat going forward? So I think um, nothing I'm gonna say is, is anything new that probably the audience haven't heard, but again, it's, it, it's this concept of social norms changing. So being able to apply social distancing and it actually becoming some sort of norm. But I think going forward as well, thinking about this virus in particular, but also as a pan, maybe as a pandemic, thinking about the potential of up to five waves of this coronavirus, um, the need for a vaccine. I think it's no secret. Um, you know, you, but how long will a vaccine take? How long will a vaccine take, though? I think, uh, I mean, my understanding of what's happening at the moment is that the trials are being rolled out. So they're in phase one of the trials in terms of using the vaccine. So I would assume that they are going to hope that by August, anticipating the second wave, if it comes in autumn, um, that the, the vaccine should be out. But I think by the latest at the end of the year. All right, fair enough. All right, listen, I know you got head off, so I appreciate your time very, very much. And I'm sure the audience appreciate it as well. So Dr. Furlow, thank you very much for coming on today. You shed so much light on this situation and we appreciate your time. Um, and we hope to hear again from you soon. All right. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye-bye. Stay safe, people. Bye-bye.